0: So I want to start by having you think back to the last time you were in a math or science class. Some of you, this was, (laughs) Allie likes that. Some of you, that's pretty recently. Others, this might have been a long time ago. But think about when you have some type of equation you have to solve. Most of us are happy with the list of steps that our teacher gives us. We're just, all right, those are the steps. I'll follow those steps. But some of you were the student that had to know why that was the step that you had to follow. And uh, I definitely was not often this student, but I remember one situation asking my math teacher why we had to follow a certain step, and the answer was what you'd expect, that I was definitely not ready to understand that detail of math theory or something along those lines. And this is similar to how I interact with my kids. So my oldest two are four and five, so we get asked why a lot. And sometimes there's a lot of opportunities where it's appropriate and we can explain to them why, but there's a lot of times where the best answer for them is because I decided this is what's best for us right now. And there's a lot of times when that is all that we need. But there is a time when understanding that lower level of detail of why behind instructions is important. Whether you're going to On a more advanced level to be able to work out that math or science equation. Or in our case, if we're looking at a specific instruction in the Bible, understanding the why underneath it helps us to more fully flesh out obedience. So over the last um, few weeks as we've been going through Proverbs, marriage has come up quite a bit. And then In the next few weeks, Joe is going to be preaching through Song of Solomon. So this week, what we want to do was take a step back and look at the foundational text in the Bible for marriage. Everything we see throughout the Bible about marriage flows from this foundational text that's laid in Genesis chapter 2. Understanding the foundation of how marriage was made enables us to better know God and to more fully enjoy God's design as we live by it. So the goal for this message is to understand what marriage is at its core and how that impacts us in different stages of life. We're going to start by reading Genesis 2, and then um, we're going to look at three different passages in the New Testament where Genesis 2 is directly quoted. And then from there, we'll look at the main point and how this applies to us. So we'll start in Genesis chapter 2. Um, Verses 18 through 25 takes place on the sixth day of creation. Adam has already been created by God, and these verses explain how God created Eve and formed the first marriage. So Genesis chapter 2, 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. To fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And now, verse 24, this is the key verse that we're going to come back to often. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or is joined to or is united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So we're still practically on the first page of the Bible, and verse 24 gives us the clearest definition of marriage. This is the foundational text that throughout the New Testament, whenever one of the authors was looking to explain or defend marriage, they went back to this text for us to understand God's design of marriage. According to verse 24, marriage is defined as the whole life covenant union of one man and one woman. The man leaves his parents and is united with his wife, and they, too, become one. So other relationships are put aside Hold fast is a reference to this type of covenant commitment, and the two, the one man and one woman, become one unit. The most foundational aspect of marriage is this joining together of two individuals as one. This union is a comprehensive all-of-life union. You are entirely joined with your spouse for life. So now we've read this foundational text and now we're going to look at those three New Testament texts that reference or quote Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 specifically in reference to that one flesh nature of marriage. But of course in the next chapter of Genesis Adam and Eve rebel against God and now sin has affected every marriage but sin doesn't change the fact that God created marriage to be good. Although it's broken, it's still fundamentally good for us. So now we're going to jump ahead to Jesus in the book of Matthew. Matthew 19, 3 through 9 is also recorded in Mark 10. And this is an interaction that Jesus had with the Pharisees. And they are trying to give Jesus a difficult question by asking him about marriage and divorce. So this is Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, and this is quoting Genesis two twenty four. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so and I say to you whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery so this is not the exhaustive explanation of divorce but Jesus does show the extent of this whole life union in marriage so when a man and a woman are joined In the covenant of marriage, the idea of their union, it's not only symbolic. There's a real sense in that they are joined together as one. They're not two anymore. They're one. You can't simply take that one unit and break it back into two individuals without damage. And then verse 6 cuts into our desire to maintain personal independence within our marriage by saying they are no longer two but one flesh. So once you're married, everything you do impacts the oneness of your marriage relationship. So damage has to be done in order to break one marriage back into two individuals. So that's that first New Testament passage and how it's helped our understanding of this definition of one flesh nature of marriage. Now we're going to go to the next text, which will be in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6. So here Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and they, he's addressing a number of challenges that they had including cheap views that they had of sex and marriage and Christians today we can have these same views when we think what I do in my body doesn't really affect me so Paul through the book deals substantially with marriage and then this passage right here is specifically addressing sexual sin so this is 1 Corinthians 6 15-20 Do you not know that your bodies are members with Christ? So here Paul actually starts by saying that Christians are joined or united with Christ as well. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, quoting Genesis two twenty four again, the two will become one flesh. So here Paul is using Genesis 2.24 as motivation for us to run from sexual sin. And by doing this, Paul is making a connection between sex and the one flesh union of marriage. So having sex is central to a union that is experienced in marriage. God brings the two sexes together in marriage. So the act of sex is essential to our understanding of marriage and the marriage relationship. So if an essential way that a married couple is joined together is in their physical relationship, then having sex outside of marriage is lying about the union of two individuals. Their actions are saying, no, we're not two, we're one, when in reality they are they're not because they've never made the covenant for a lifelong union in marriage. In sex outside of marriage, an individual has joined to that person but without the complete union that marriage brings. So it's a broken union. And on top of that, in this passage, Paul adds to the fact that as Christians, we are spiritually united with Christ and that we have the Holy Spirit living in us. And he uses this to only heighten the sense of sin and disgust when Christians commit any form of sexual sin. Our bodies belong to God. So what we do with our bodies matters. In sexual sin, this passage points out that we sin against ourselves. We sin against the individual that we've sinned with. We sin against a spouse if we're married. And ultimately we sin against God. All right, so now we've looked at 1 Corinthians. Now we're going to look at the third passage, which will be in Ephesians 5. So here Paul is writing to the church in the city of Ephesus. This is about a few years later after he had written to Corinth. And here the church in Ephesus didn't have as many problems to address, but Paul still made the point to give instructions on marriage. And in here he'll use Genesis 2.24 as motivation for why a husband should love his wife. So Ephesians 5 verses 22 through 33. having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of of his body. And now he's going to quote Genesis 2:24 again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the reason that Paul quoted Genesis two twenty four was not only to show that marriage has this permanent one flesh union. It's also to show that Jesus shares this same type of permanent union with his people, with the church. Jesus loves the church. He died to save the church and he's permanently united with the church. And then the other aspect of this union that Paul introduces in Ephesians 5 is the head and body relationship. The one flesh union of a head and body provides the motivation for why a husband lovingly sacrifices himself for his wife. A husband should love his wife because as one body with her, it's even for his own good. A wife is to relate to her husband with respect and submission the way a body relates to a head. A head has a certain role in relationship to the body, and the body has a certain role in relationship to the toward the head. They can't work without each other or by ignoring their differences in how they relate to each other, because they're united as one. So after looking at all of these texts of scripture, the main point of this is that All Christians must honor God's design for marriage as the lifelong union of a man and woman created by God to show God's nature and his character. All Christians must honor God's design for marriage as the lifelong union of a man and woman created to show God's nature and his character. So these passages give us that foundational definition of marriage. Marriage is the whole life covenant union of a man and a woman. Marriage is the complete union of two individuals. A husband and wife are now inseparable unless damage is done to both. When you weld two pieces of metal together, you melt those two pieces of metal until they flow together and reharden. The goal is for them to be like one solid piece of metal when you're done with it. God designed marriage with this type of union because he is this way in his relationships. All Christians must honor God's design for marriage as the lifelong union of a man and woman created to show God's nature and his character, to show what he is like. So now that we've established this foundational definition of marriage, we're going to look at two different spiritual realities that marriage reflects. And then after that, we're going to look at how this applies to us in different stages of life. The first spiritual reality that marriage reflects is the Trinity. God made marriage to reflect the Trinity. We won't spend too much time here, but the Bible does point out the connection between the marriage and the Trinity. It's implied a couple different places and then specifically called out in 1 Corinthians 11. And here are a couple different ways that marriage reflects the Trinity. The first parallel between marriage and the Trinity is the unity of multiple persons as one. This is not a complete parallel, but there are aspects of the relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit to each other that are mirrored in the relationship between a husband and wife. In the Trinity, there are multiple persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, united as one. And in a lesser sense, in marriage— You have multiple persons, a husband and wife united as one. As a husband and wife exist in mutual love and harmony with each other, they reflect what the Trinity is like. They reflect the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through all eternity. Even just the institution of marriage on its own shows this. And as we grow in mutual love with our spouse, we reflect and glorify God. So God created marriage because it's good for us, but also because it shows what he is like. God created marriage this way because this is how he is, and he wants the world to see and know him and know what he is like. Another parallel between marriage and the Trinity is that just as a wife is to submit to her husband, Jesus submitted to the Father in his life and his death on the cross now a wife is not less than her husband any more than Jesus and his submission was less than the father a husband is not more valuable than his wife any more than the father is more valuable than the son so if it was good that the son submit to the father in order to accomplish God's purpose for our salvation we can trust that it's good for us for our homes for our marriages that a wife submit to her husband as God made her to by his design God made marriage to reflect what God is like in the Trinity. The next spiritual reality that marriage reflects is the relationship between Christ and the church. So God made marriage to reflect Christ's relationship with the church. So the Bible hints at that first spiritual reality of the relationship with the Trinity, but it highlights marriage as a picture of Christ and the church. Specifically in Ephesians 5. The union of a head and body pictures both marriage and Christ's relationship with the church in Ephesians 5. A husband is described as the head of his wife, and Christ is the head of the church. A wife and the church are represented by the body. Head here is talking about a position of authority and responsibility in relationship to the body. As Christ has authority over the church, a husband reflects Christ by his authority over his wife. As the church submits to Christ, a wife reflects this by submitting to her husband. Now, the reason this connection, this idea of a head and body type connection is so significant is because this type of connection is the only way for our sins to be removed from us. We're talking a lot about marriage, but this is not ultimately about marriage. This is ultimately about our sin and our rebellion against God and the fact that we rightly deserve God's judgment and punishment for our rebellion against him. So how do we have that removed from us? How do we have that taken away? Now, If we stand before God on our own, we are guilty before God and we rightly deserve his punishment. But if we stand before God connected to Jesus, if we stand before God united with Jesus and under Jesus, instead of seeing our guilt, God sees Jesus' sinless life. So then our punishment is removed and taken away because we're connected to Jesus. To the extent where Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. So when Christ was on the cross, we were there with him. Our sins were put on Jesus. Our sins were put on the cross and have been removed. They've been taken care of. So instead of rightly being afraid of the punishment we deserve for our sin... We are given Jesus righteousness and the hope that one day we will be with Jesus forever in God's kingdom. So marriage, marriage doesn't save us, but God made it to point to how he saves us from our sin. And if you have not put yourself under Jesus, you carry your own guilt before God. Jesus died for our sins, rose from, from the dead, and he is coming again as God's king. So, turn away from your rebellion against Jesus' authority and depend on his death on the cross as your only hope for your salvation. So, when a husband takes responsibility for his wife and lovingly sacrifices himself for her, for her good, he is a mirror reflecting Jesus and God's love for his people. When a wife puts herself under her husband, it points to how God's people put themselves under Christ. So husbands and wives get to exalt the gospel by living by God's design for our marriage. So God made marriage because it's good for us, but also to show us what he is like. So all Christians need to honor God's design for sex and marriage because it reflects the Trinity, it reflects God's relationship with the church. But this isn't limited only to those who are married. So if we're going to start by looking at how singles honor and live out God's design, followed by how this looks for those who are married. So singles, prepare for marriage. Christians who are single should be preparing for marriage. The traditional wedding ceremony, which most of us have heard at some point in time, it comes from the Book of Common Prayer, which is several hundred years old and is deeply rooted in the truths of the Bible. And it lists out three purposes for marriage that demonstrate why it's appropriate for singles to prepare for marriage. The first purpose that it gives is having children. So even at this most basic level, it's how God designed for human life to continue. The second purpose, is that it's God's way of providing sexual fulfillment and protection from sexual sin. This doesn't mean that marriage completely removes all sexual temptation to sin, but God has given it to us as a help. And the third purpose is to be a mutual help. So when God made Adam, he said, it's not good for men to be alone. And God resolved that by giving Adam a spouse. God made men and women not to be alone and separate, but to be together in marriage. So while marriage is not guaranteed, it's absolutely appropriate for singles to prepare for marriage. Specifically, for single men, you should prepare for marriage by growing in those attributes of responsibility and selfless, sacrificial love. So to be prepared to be the head or take responsibility In a marriage relationship, you should be taking responsibility for wherever you are now. And to be prepared to love sacrificially, you should be willing to give up your own selfish interests for the good of others where you are now. You can do this whether you are still living at home with your family or if you're living on your own. You can find these opportunities whether it's in your work or here within the life of the church. Now, God's call for you to bear responsibility as men, doesn't enable men to dominate selfishly to get their own way. In Genesis 3, um, after Adam and Eve sinned and God is explaining the effects of the curse to Adam and Eve, he says to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. This is actually describing the effects of sin both on the husband and on the wife. God doesn't call men to rule or dominate their wives selfishly. He calls them to, the words we saw in Ephesians 5, and to nourish and cherish. So single men should grow in personal responsibility and selfless care for others as you prepare for marriage. On the other hand, single women should prepare for marriage by growing in appropriate, respectful submission. So that passage in Genesis 3 highlights the sinful desire of women to selfishly control their husbands so as god has put men in positions of responsibility within your life whether it's your dad or your pastors let them take that responsibility cultivate a spirit of respect towards those god has put in your life hebrews 13 17 gives us a parallel for this and in that verse he's talking to the church and how the church should respond to its pastors and elders Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So in the same way, single women, know that God has put these individuals in your life for your good and grow in respectful submission as you prepare for marriage. Singles should also embrace the purpose that God has for you in the church. So no matter how long God has called you to singleness, embrace God's purpose for you in the church. So most who experience long periods of singleness feel the weight of that verse in Genesis 2 where it says it's not good for a man or for a woman to be alone. Unwanted singleness is a part of our broken world. But no matter how long God has for you, to live the Christian life as a single. God has a purpose for it. He has a purpose for your singleness. In the church, you are not alone. You are brought into a spiritual family. Ephesians two nineteen says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are members of the household of God. The New Testament is full of family language to describe our relationships in the church. In the church, you have spiritual fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, and even spiritual sons and daughters. So in addition to the family that single Christians have in the church, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, actually says that he wishes that everyone was single like he was. In verse 32 of that chapter, Paul says, the unmarried or single man is anxious about things of the Lord how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. If marriage is such a big deal and the normal pattern for life as God has designed it, then then if God's purpose for you is to remain single, take that as significant that God would give you this unique opportunity to focus your attention on him and on serving him. Take the gift that God has given you to devote yourself to the Lord in the church. Consider the fact that Jane Austen, the author from the 1800s who wrote several romantic novels, she was actually never married. In prayers and letters written by her, as well as a biography that her nephew wrote, we have records of how she demonstrated faith. In God and lived faithfully in her singleness. If you've read any of her novels, it's clear how well she observed those around her and how well she observed both bad marriages and good marriages and how well she observed the blessings of love and marriage. But she embraced the life that God had given her within her family in her singleness. So Christians, embrace God's purpose for you within the church. Now, married couples. Married couples persist in growing in your whole life union. Here, I'm going to run quickly through a handful of specific ways in which we should pursue unity in our marriages. First of all, persist in prioritizing your marriage union. So every other care and responsibility in life, whether it's work or children or other relationships, or entertainment, all of those things should only get second next to your marriage. And don't just put everything to the side, be persistent in pursuing union and closeness with your spouse. Next, persist in pursuing a head and body like union. Men, practice being decisive and taking initiative with daily decisions and responsibilities in your home. Women, when you strongly support his leadership and respectfully let him take initiative and even let him fail and mess up, you encourage him to better love you and your family. Persist in pursuing spiritual union. So if your spouse is a believer, you are responsible to encourage each other's walk with God. Your direction as a husband and wife is not only toward each other, but it's toward God and away from the sin that tears into our marriages. Regularly have patterns of confessing your sin together, of praying together, discussing God's word together. As you draw closer to God, you'll grow closer in your union together. Persist in pursuing emotional union. So marriage is not made to be cold and unfeeling. Those words that we looked at, respect, nourish, cherish. These words are full of emotional care for each other. It's likely the primary reason you got married was emotional even. So don't emotionally disengage from your spouse, but pour into each other emotionally. Persist in pursuing physical union. God made sex as the beautiful expression of your whole life union for you to enjoy. Sexual temptation can come from both outside of your marriage, in pornography, or another individual, or it can actually come from within your marriage by failing to care about your sexual union. Persist in pursuing union in your interests. Be interested in each other. Be interested in what your spouse is interested in. Find things to enjoy together. Whether it's reading a book together or going for a hike together, I, for a month, rented a room from a couple who was nearing retirement age and how they spent time together is they would play ping pong together. They destroyed me in ping pong and it was, it was good for their marriage. They enjoyed doing it together. And for this last one, persist. God has called you to be active in holding fast to your spouse for your whole life. And for this, I want to remind us of the good gift that marriage is. And to do this, I want to read a quote from George Mueller, something he wrote about his relationship with his wife. Now, George Mueller, he founded a number of orphanages throughout England in the 1800s, and his testimony um, was known for having faith that God would provide for him and the orphanages in often very difficult circumstances. So here's a portion of what he wrote about his relationship with his wife, Mary. I never saw my beloved wife at any time when I met her unexpectedly anywhere in Bristol without being delighted to do so. I never met her even in the orphan houses without my heart being delighted to do so. Day by day, as we met in our dressing room at the orphan houses to wash our hands before dinner or tea, I was delighted to meet her, and she was equally pleased to see me. Thousands of times I told her, my darling, I never saw you at any time since you became my wife without my being delighted to see you. Marriage is beautiful. Marriage is good, but we don't put the sin out of our marriages in a day. We don't learn how to enjoy our marriage and enjoy our spouse no matter what the circumstances in a day. So be persistent in your marriage because God has given us our whole lives to enjoy union with our spouses. And in the process, we understand God better, his nature, and his love for his people. So whether you're married or single, understanding marriage rightly affects how you live. And this is rooted in God's creation of marriage and in the definition of marriage in Genesis 2:24. God designed marriage to be the whole life union of a man and a woman. So commit yourself to unity in your marriage. Prepare yourself for marriage. And honor marriage as God designed. Marriage is God's good gift and design for us to live by.